This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. All right. We're recording. Okay. So. Welcome back, guys. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Definitely have not been crying today. No. Nope. 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 <clears throat> and probably not going to cry in this episode. Last episode really affected me, mm-hmm. obviously, quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So this one is going to be roughish, but we'll let Jess tell you all about that. I just wanted to let you guys know that there won't be any emotion from me. Listen, and if there is, it's okay, because you're human, and we're all human. I'm a robot. <laughs> <laughs> so when it says- I had an emotion. I was 12, did not care for it. <laughs> I worked through it. (laughs) Never again. Never again. (laughs) All right. I'm Priya Hubbard. I'm Jessica Borges. And I'm Keith Burke. So the title of this episode is Death Row is Effed Up. Or Fucked Up. Or Fucked Up. (laughs) Ten episodes in. One of these days you'll you'll decide. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. We're close to the end. (laughs) (laughs) This is another rough one. And since coming out of the last episode, which was really fucking rough, we're just going to remind you of a couple of things you might need to remember for this episode. We covered an incredible man named Daryl Hunt, who after spending 19 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, was finally exonerated. He dedicated his life outside to helping others and helping to try to reform the justice system, which we're going to be exploring in this episode. So let's get started. All right. The body of a truck driver named Alan Ray Jenkins was found inside his home on April 14th, 1995. He'd been shot by his own shotgun at close range. Two teenage girls admitted that they were at Jenkins' house at the time of the murder and identified the murderer as a man named James Allen Gell, familiarly known as Allen. So SBI Special Agent Dwight Ransom and the Chief of Police locked in on Allen as the murderer. Eyewitnesses had already told Ransom and the police chief that they'd seen Jenkins alive after April 3rd. But for reasons we'll get into in a bit, Ransom and the police chief needed for Jenkins to have died on the 3rd. So they re-interviewed the witnesses who had said that they'd seen him after the April 3rd date, giving them that April 3rd date. So they Let me guess, conveniently the story changed? And interestingly enough, the Hmm. witnesses provided new statements, saying that they were not sure of the actual date that they had seen Jenkins alive. So with all of their I's crossed and T's dotted, the police arrested Alan on August 1st, 1995. He was charged with first degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, armed robbery, and conspiracy to commit armed robbery. The girls testified at his trial pursuant to plea agreements, saying that they had witnessed him murder Jenkins. Alan was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to the death penalty. So Alan was far from rich. And now he'd been given the death penalty. And the only good thing about those two things is that unlike a regular trial where you only get one overworked and overburdened public defender is that now the state had to supply him with two post-conviction lawyers. The even better thing about that is in 1996, a law was enacted where the entire investigation case file had to be provided to the defense, something that a public defender in a pre-conviction trial wouldn't be given. Why is that? So I totally don't fucking understand that. How in the world is that acceptable 
practice to say like we have all this stuff but you can't see it yeah. right i totally like, do this what, is so that's the whole thing of like pre-trial discovery and like you you're required to give all that information not to like well i don't want to see this stuff because the right. rest of it totally proves my case wrong if a defense attorney could get at us either email us or go on our facebook or insta or whatever and like right. let us know Explain we're it. super fucking confused and i've talked to our experts about this yeah and they're super confused too Anyway, so defense attorneys James Comey and Mary Pollard began working Allen's case in 2002, and they found some pretty interesting information. The original witness statements where the witnesses had seen Jenkins alive after April 3rd. So the original statements. They're like, we see two sets Mm -hmm. of statements now. What the fuck is going on? Why did it change? So in addition to that, Marilyn Miller, our forensic genius friend, helped the lawyers examine the case. She visited the crime scene and examined the evidence and photographs of the crime scene. And it should be noted that the bloodstain patterns that were initially analyzed were done so by an FBI special agent named Dennis Honeycutt. He's been mentioned a couple of times in our podcast, but not much because, and this is important, he was not a bloodstain pattern analyst. So it was a good thing he was looking at that blood. Yep. I mean, I don't know how far he went into the analysis. He may not have. He may just have just looked at the blood spatter and been like, nah, this is not important or whatever. Yeah. But someone trained in bloodstain pattern analysis like Marilyn would have been able to identify that the patterns did not match up with the girl's story about where Alan and Jenkins had allegedly been standing. There was arterial spray that indicated that whoever killed Jenkins was not standing in the place where the girls had said that he True. was. Yeah. The girls actually changed their story six different times. Six? Six. Yes, they're consistent. Consistent to be inconsistent. Yeah. (laughs) Consistently inconsistent. Mm -hmm. But each time was closer and closer to what the police and ransom needed. Right. So, well, now we have this statement, but are you sure they were standing in the hallway? yeah. Yeah. But also, they don't forget, pursuant to a plea agreement, they gave these statements. Right. So they they had, had they're incentive. cooperating to yeah. get a reduced sentence. Right. Needless to say, even if everything else was going wrong, and it was, it would have been nice to have a good impartial scientist at the crime scene. Correct. In addition to all of this, the attorneys called But wait, up- there's more. Exactly. <laughs> <sighs> For the low, low price of nineteen ninety nine. Commercial from hell. Uh, yes. <laughs> So for 1999, the attorneys called up a former professor of entomology, less formally known as a bug studier. I was going to say, that's bugs, right? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool job. He was able makes to- Makes me think of entomants, though. <laughs> it makes me think of etymology, the study of words. I often get these two screwed up. See, so you're an intellect. I'm a fatty. I think of coffee cake and you think of the study of words. <laughs> <laughs> In addition to all of this, the attorneys called up a former professor of entomology. He was able to definitively determine that based on the life cycle of the maggots found on the body, which never varies, Jenkins died on April 8th, 9th, or 10th, but definitely not on April 3rd. Oh. So remember- Don't lie. So- Remember that that April 3rd date was super important to the police and Ransom. Right. Why? Turns out it was because they had confirmed that on April 4th and 5th, Alan was out of town. Oh, well, that's convenient. As soon as he got back, he was immediately arrested for car theft and was still in jail after Jenkins' body was found. Huh. So from the 4th on... He could not have killed killed him. Yeah. As far as alibis go, Alan had some pretty fucking good ones. 
If Jenkins didn't die on April 3rd, that meant that Alan didn't murder him. Hmm. So Alan's conviction was vacated. Great. Great. But unfortunately, all that meant was that Alan had to be retried in the murder of Alan Ray Jenkins, a crime of which he was completely innocent. Like, we know that he's fucking innocent. Right. So why waste the taxpayers' money by retrying Right, the like, couldn't they drop the charges? That's what I don't get. I know. Well, there's, no. there's always, it's always people's egos. We can't look bad and, say, and show, like, how much we fucked this up. So fucking annoying. Mm-hmm. At this retrial, Alan's defense team included Marion James, but also had the addition of the Dream Team, who represented Kurt Turner, Joe Cheshire, and Brad Bannon. It took two years, but on February 18th, 2004, Alan was acquitted of all charges and released. Excellent. Great job, team. Woohoo! Yeah. Hooray. Hooray. The end. I feel like you're lying because now it's going to get sad. I'm right. Rage inducing. <sighs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So here I come in with some material. Here comes news. Debbie Downer. Yep. <laughs> All right. So Alan was given the death penalty because punishing people by death is a thing that we still do in this country, legally putting people to death for crimes that they may or may not have committed. At least that's so in about 30 states or so. And as humans, we've been using the death penalty as punishment for a very long time. So here's a little history class for you. Super uplifting. History, history. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> as far as we know, the death penalty started with the Code of King Hammurabi of Babylon in 18th century BC. It probably existed well before that, but Hammurabi actually organized crimes and the punishments that followed. And Hammurabi's law had about 25 different crimes that would be punished by death. Jeez. Yeah. In the 5th century BC, Rome had the law of 12 tablets. And the methods of execution included crucifixion, drowning, beatings, and being burned alive and impalement. So, Yay. super uplifting. Yay, Rome. Yay. By the 16th century AD, England incorporated all kinds of methods. Oh, hanging, gosh, yeah. boiling, burning at the stake, beheading, drawing, and quartering. The Iron Maiden was another one. The Iron Maiden was a coffin with oh, spikes God. inside. <gasps> so, when the coffin closed, you, you got, got pierced just enough that you would slowly bleed to death. Oh, God. Oh. And that... There were cranks that could like bring them in and out. Bring the, bring the That's spikes. Horrible. In and out. There's an entire uh, museum of torture in that England? has yeah that has all of the sort They're of medieval. Real proud of their shit. The grossest one that I was there's a cage filled with rats that's put over your stomach and the top of it is heated so the rats have nowhere to go mm. but down or through use of the at the rats eat through you. Whoa. So it's a, it's. One of the most painful deaths they had is oh my eaten God. alive by rats. That's horrible. Yes. Anyway. Wow. Yeah. That's, really that's my contribution. But humans. Do fucked up shit. Do really fucked up shit yeah. to other humans yeah. on purpose. It's really disgusting. Yeah. Okay. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, crimes punishable by death included treason, not confessing to a crime. It's not clear if confessing to the crime resulted in death. When people colonized America, they brought their old world capital punishment shit with them. And apparently, the first recorded execution in the new colonies was Captain George Kendall in 1608 in Virginia. He was allegedly a spy for Spain. And in North Carolina, the first known execution was a Native American man in 1726. Since hanging was a preferred method of execution, it's likely that he was hanged publicly. Speaking of, public hangings, lynchings, all of it, it's apparently a really shitty part of our human nature. And it seems that there are some people, historically, who take a morbid pleasure in watching people die. 
A man named Noel Yancey wrote about these public hangings, saying public hangings were social occasions that attracted spectators from far and near. In anticipation of the event, a wife might prepare a cake, a fried chicken, deviled eggs, while her husband made sure that he had plenty of liquor. They hitched the team of horses to their wagon, and soon the whole family would be on their way to watch the gruesome event. Jesus. So basically, death by execution was considered entertainment to these people. I can barely even watch Handmaid's Tale without closing my eyes every few minutes, so count me out for taking my horse and buggy anywhere near such a horrible monstrosity. I would be like, hard no. Not for me. I'm good. I'll stay in the garden. Yeah. (laughs) I'm reading a book right now. Yeah, I'm busy forever. I have bone spurs. (laughs) I I have to rest. (laughs) All right. So by 1910, a state of North Carolina took charge of executions. Prior to that, it seemed to be more of a local matter, just as described. But because it was becoming pretty clear that the shit wasn't cool, they decided to make some changes. Newman was 100% down (laughs) with North Carolina taking over these executions. He's into it. Yeah. Also, there seemed to be a need for consistency and humaneness. So the state determined that the electric chair would be vastly less painful than hangings. And by the 1930s, they replaced the electric chair with a gas chamber as a more humane way of killing people. So they were kind of like uh, upgrading their death penalty. Well, it seems like they were trying to do it more efficiently and not so much worrying about the pain. I mean, they said they were trying to be more humane. Yeah. I think they were trying. But yes, efficiently and more humane. But... It's still, I still have a hard time with it because I just find it all so disturbing. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's I'm better very than- anti-death penalty. Yeah. Like, I go, sometimes I go back and forth. Yeah. Okay. Like when, when, when I hear of like some, somebody doing something like so heinous and horrible and disgusting, I'm like, okay, I could see it. I, I, I'm conflicted on it. I'm leaning, I lean more towards no, because it, you know, obviously is super inhumane, but yeah. I think monsters, okay. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, it would be have to be something where it's, like, it's concrete. The person, like... That's what, that's like, what I made killed me... 40, I killed 45 people. Right. I don't feel bad. Great. Bye. Right. right. Yeah. Because, like, so Personally. many times you just don't know if they actually are... Yeah. Or and I don't know, like, that's to put issue. myself in a situation where someone that I knew mm-hmm. was killed. Yeah. I feel pretty confident that I'd be like, okay, bye. I am, I am super conflicted, though, because, like, 90% of me is, no, it's... We shouldn't do it. And it's, I think... It's not a humane way to deal with things and there, you know, are possibilities and people can have remorse and, but I think there's 10% of me that's like. Yeah. I have also been conflicted (laughs) prior to writing and researching a lot of this. I was pretty staunchly like 50, 50. Mm -hmm. My caveat was always, as long as we know 100% that that person is guilty of that crime. Like they've confessed and they're yeah. not fighting it. And they're like, yep. But even with confession, like in this research, even with confessions, right. even with yeah. everything, like I've really changed and I've really started to see death row as being like state mandated murder. Right. And I'm having a really hard time with no, it. And I think that's, I think that's valid. I think I'll, uh, for a, a large percentage of the people that are on death row, I don't think I would agree with well, can we killing a- them. Can we put a pin in this conversation and circle back to it? Because I think this is a really good conversation. Mm -hmm. But can we get through some of the information and see how you feel after you hear the information? Okay. Okay. Cool. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty cruel and unusual punishment. 
and ruled that it was a violation of the Eighth Amendment that juries were allowed to use their discretion when imposing the death penalty. So North Carolina responded to that by enacting a law that the death penalty would be mandatory in certain crimes. So so that, wait, what? So certain yeah. crimes, they would say, yes. So that we was their constitution, but also, fuck you. Yeah, it's like, we do what yeah. we want. So, yeah, there go rogue. I just want to make that, like, super clear for our listeners that the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know what? This kind of isn't cool. So juries, you do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Like you decide however you want right. to decide during the North sen- Carolina sentencing. said to hold my beer. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> so they made the death penalty mandatory in certain X crimes. crimes. Yeah. yeah. Certain. Yeah. Okay. So ultimately this led to 120 condemned inmates. 120? Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Four years later, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned those fucked up mandatory laws and those 120 condemned inmates had their sentences either vacated, commuted, or were resentenced to life in prison. Okay. Which is good. Seems like the system is correcting. Mm-hmm. Except that's still fucking oh. four years, though. Yeah, and also. Right. And also. Oh. By 1977 in North Carolina, so that's math five Five years later? Five years later. Five years later, the death penalty was right back on the table for first-degree murder. And How? Oh, so it was North Carolina had made it mandatory, and then the Supreme Court said, no, you can't have it. It's not mandatory. Mandatory. Oh, okay. Sorry. And then in 1977, they were like, you know what we should do again? Murder. It should be noted that in the 80s and 90s, that was like a real tough-on-crime type of time across the U.S., and also in North Carolina. And harsher penalties were handed out more freely. And between 1984 and 2006, 43 people were executed Holy in shit. North Carolina. So uh, that whole, like, the t- being tough on crime definitely had a hand in right. those people, I would say. Mm-hmm. Because it was just like, that was what people wanted. It was very much like, oh, we're getting people off the streets. Like, we're getting the bad guys off the streets. Mm-hmm. And this is justice. And it was like commonplace yeah yeah Yeah. and then on october 29th 1998 north carolina officially made the death penalty by lethal injection the sole method of execution side note though there are those who are now arguing that lethal injection is also inhumane but we could also make the argument that killing people in general is inhumane yeah start there so it's just not all not great yeah yeah but back to alan gill in 2002 alan gill was removed from death row in 2004, he was acquitted of the crimes for which he was accused. And this goes back again to like the period of time that it takes, even though you may be removed right. from death row, it doesn't like mean you're that super you're super fucking innocent. Yeah. And you still have to deal with fuckery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So two years later, he was acquitted of the crimes for which he was accused. The complete fuckery in his case warranted a desperate need to review how capital cases were pursued by law enforcement. You'd think the government, the ones representing the humans of North Carolina, would shut down the death penalty at that point until they could figure out what the fuck happened and how it happened before. Especially since there are people on death row like Alan. Spoiler, there's been around nine death row exonerations in North Carolina. Hmm. So it's not a stretch to think that there are probably innocent people still there today. See, that's that's where I get torn. Mm-hmm. Is it like yeah. you have these people where you don't know for sure some people are innocent and mm-hmm. I don't think – I don't th- I guess where my stance would be like, it's not something that should be done lightly. Yeah, absolutely. Like to me, it's someone who's an extreme, you know, offender. Right. Someone who's, you know, gone on a killing spree or things like that. And we know it like it's on video. We've seen him do it. I feel okay with that morally. 
Like you took 12 lives. You shouldn't have yours. We shouldn't be paying for you to have your life. But I'm also sort of of the mind. And this 100% comes from listening to Ear Hustle. I 100% believe in a prisoner's redemption, in a human's Mm -hmm. redemption. Giving them the chance to rehabilitate. But say, can you redeem yourself from killing 12 people? I don't don't know if you can. Personally, I don't know if I believe that. Like if you, you know, killed a dozen people, I don't know if there's any coming back from that. Well, it depends on what the reason is. It depends For sure. On, yeah. Like yeah. there are a lot of mitigating factors. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But look at Daryl Hunt and all the fucking good that he did mm-hmm. in the short time that he was out to the time that he died. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if that person on well, but death he, row But he was also or, somebody who didn't do right, he was wrong anything. Convicted. Right. But that's not to say that there aren't. There are a ton of people like look at 13th. A lot of former prisoners were in 13th and are doing incredible work. Right. And it doesn't excuse right. what they did, right. whatever it was that they did. But if there is a chance to take a tragedy and turn it into a positive, mm-hmm. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, it is. It is a very personal thing. And it's a very gray conversation because yeah. there isn't like a hard and fast rule. Well, okay, well, if you've done this then bye if you haven't then you're fine right like there's not really like a cut and dry it's Mm -mm. and no two cases are exactly no and how do you exactly how do you how do you decide for sure how do you quantify like unbiased how do you quantify a life yeah Yeah. basically Mm -hmm. and so to me i'm like because of this conversation i think that goes more toward abolishing the death penalty than it does for keeping it around because there are too many variables. Mm-hmm. There's, there aren't any absolutes. Right. No, I, th- I think for the most part, it shouldn't be an option. But I do think in, in certain cases that I think it's fair. Okay. Where did I leave off? You think that the government would shut down the death penalty at that very moment when they found out that Alan Gell was innocent. Yeah, you would think that they would just go, okay, let's just re-examine our policies and how do we get here before we, like, let's put a pause on everybody that's on death row right now and make sure we're not fucking up other cases. Yeah. So it's definitely not a stretch to think that there could still be innocent people on death row today. So in 2003, Senator Eleanor Kinnaird proposed a bill to create a two-year study on the inequalities in capital sentencing along economic, geographic, and racial lines. But of course, that bill didn't make it past the North Carolina House of Representatives. So really natural segue here. On August 18th, 2006, Samuel Flippin was executed by lethal injection. His was the last execution in North Carolina. And since then, there has been a moratorium on executions in the state for various reasons. As an example, in 2014, a Wake County Superior Court judge, Donald Stevens, blocked the use of lethal injection in the state, finding that method to be cruel and unusual, as mentioned earlier. Why did they say unusual? Because like when it's like cruel and unusual punishment, like it's in that state, it's been the form of murder. So it's not unusual. It's cruel and unusual. Yeah, you're right. Email us at <laughs> 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 podcast at gmail.com if you know the answer to that. Actually, there is a really sweet woman who is a really big fan of ours named Cara Nicole. Hi, Cara. Hi, Cara. Hey. Um, and in She corrects our- all of our mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Cara. In one of the episodes, we asked people to get at us because we had a huge question Keith asked if the money that people get 
uh, is taxed. Post, is taxed. Mm-hmm. And we were like, it's a fucking great question. And it was a great yeah. question. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she was so sweet because uh, we post in the group. And um, she actually did a little bit of a Google search to try to find an answer. She didn't actually find one. But uh, mm-hmm. she attempted to. And it was really fucking sweet. Mm-hmm. sweet. Yeah. Anyway, back to the death penalty. <laughs> it has been about 13 years since that last execution which is a fuck of a long time wondering whether or not the state is going to kill you. Cause there's still people on death row that are like, yeah. Oh yeah. But it's worse than that because most of the people housed on death row have been there since the nineties when North Carolina was notorious for cracking down on crime. And also the, the U S just in general, yeah. like in the 80s, in the 80s and the 90s, and the 90s, it was like tough on crime. Yeah. We're on drugs. At this point in time, I don't think it's just the lethal injection. That's cruel and unusual. I'd argue that keeping men and women on death row for 30 fucking years is cruel and unusual. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to get caught up on what it's like inside death row. So Alan Gell spent nine years behind bars, wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted of murdering Alan Ray Jenkins. Nearly six of those years were spent on death row. And we wanted to try to understand what those six years looked like. But first, we've got to take a minute to shout out to Ear Hustle, the amazing podcast from Radiotopia, who did an entire episode called The Row. If you're interested in hearing first-time accounts of what life is like on death row, we highly recommend listening to that episode. But that's San Quentin here in California. For North Carolina, operations of death row fall under the purview of the Department of Safety. So we went to their website to see how they describe death row. Sounds delightful. <laughs> As you can imagine. No, seriously. Oh, they, they According make it sound to their website, it sounds delightful. <laughs> so there's two facilities, one for women and one for men. And they're both in Raleigh. Each facility provides a day room. <gasps> What's a, ooh, a day room? Oh, yes. Yeah. Is that like a day spa? Basically. According to their site. <laughs> sounds well, lovely. Yes. Yeah. Inmates can spend their time in the day room or in their cells. The cells are all single cells, so no roommates. Get to live alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody's snoring, mm-hmm. right? Great. Each cell has a bed, a sink, a toilet, and a wall-mounted writing table. The day room has tables, a TV, and showers at the end of it. Two days a week, inmates can go for a supervised jog or play basketball. Fun. It's basically oh. summer camp. Yeah. Yeah. Based, Sounds like you know, Kellerman's. Based from, on the uh, way that they've written it. Dirty Dancing. Yes. Schedule activities. Yes. yes. Salsa at three. Yeah. You can carry a watermelon. <laughs> Nobody puts baby in the corner. But then things take a bit of a turn. The website warns that, quote, if a death row inmate violates prison regulations, he may be placed in a segregation cell block outside of the death row area. In stark contrast to how the Department of Public Safety describes living conditions on death row, the ACLU released a report in 2013 called A Death Before Dying. In it, they report that, quote, most death row prisoners in the U.S. are locked alone in small cells for 22 to 24 hours a day. With so it's little- not that you don't have a roommate. It's not that you're, yeah. like, chilling, like, like in, in a day room and, yeah. like, having a desk and, like, writing awesome things. No, you're fucking isolated. Yeah. You're in these cells for 22 to 24 hours a day with little human contact or interaction, reduced or no natural light at all, and severe constraints on visitation, which is like we've said it before in other episodes about how like prison in and of itself is a dehumanizing circumstance, but death row is like on another level. Yeah. And that's why it's called a death before dying, because it's literally killing you. Mm -hmm. Right. It's death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. And humans weren't 
we're not built to be to be in isolation. Right. We're just not. Yeah. I mean, I hate people and they're generally the worst, but after a while I kind of miss them. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm on (laughs) like after I wrapped last season, I went to like I rented my friend's cabin and I just hid there for like five days and nothing. Yeah. And Sam was like, Have you walked into town? I'm like, I don't want to see people. But literally after five days, I was like, I haven't spoken in like five days. Hmm. <laughs> Probably do that. So having the choice is lovely. Yes. Right. Yeah. But and that's something forced that, upon you. Right. In their episode, The Row, they talked to people actually on death row. And it sounds a little bit more like the Department of Safety, Public Safety, in the way that those men describe it. Yeah, they don't say anything super like They talk bad. to people that work. They talk oh, they to talk people- to the inmates. The inmates. Yeah. Okay. How did they organize that? They sent letters to Death Row. Oh. They like did sort of like a little workaround. Oh, and then they, and then they read call. the letters. And then they read yeah. the, no, they, they read the letters call. and then the prisoners called in at an agreed upon agreed time. Agreed upon yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. That's genius. San Quentin is trying to do better. They have a lot of programs in place that for rehabilitating the people there. They have like music, they have this podcast, like they really are trying to make a difference in the prisoners' lives. That's good. Yeah. That's commendable. It's really fucking, they're trying to make it so these people don't come back and they're trying to like give them a way to have a life outside of the prison. Right. Like train them in skills and things. So the podcast is really important, but at the same time, the podcast can't really talk about certain things. Mm. So I'm, I feel very certain that the people talking to them on death row gave a very rosy and sunny picture of what goes on on death row. And I'm not saying that they're lying at all. Maybe that totally is how it is. And San Quentin is just a much better prison than a lot of other prisons. But it's also possible that the picture that they painted isn't 100% what the conditions are. All right. The Center on Death Penalty Litigation is a nonprofit organization that provides quality legal representation to death-sentenced inmates. Their executive director, a woman named Gretchen Engel, who's been with the center since 1992, described being on death row a harsher punishment than serving a life sentence. She told WUNC North Carolina's Public Radio that work and educational opportunities are limited. Inmates can only contact lawyers or loved ones on the phone or through protective glass. No touching allowed. It's even more isolating for women as there are only three there. Their lives are spent waiting for their sentences to be reduced or to be executed. The truth is, there are very real adverse mental and physical effects on humans living in these conditions with very little mental or physical health assistance provided. There are those listening that might be hearing this episode and thinking, well, these fuckers deserve to be in there. They deserve the worst because they are the worst. Right. And that sort of goes to what we were talking about. How can Um, you be sure? I spoke with Sandra Westerbelt, a professor emerita of sociology at UNC Greensboro, and Kim Cook, who is a professor of sociology and criminology at UNC Wilmington. And in talking to them about death row and in my research, I found, as I said earlier, that my understanding of death row and its inmates wasn't really accurate. It's not all scary serial killers there, as depicted by the media. And so, as we go into the story, we hope to dispel the myths of some of the people on death row and how they got there. And to do that, the first thing we need to understand is that death row is populated with living, breathing human beings. A lot of these people have committed similar heinous crimes to the people who are not imprisoned on death row. But in their cases, in these death row cases, they were charged with a capital crime. And so that's what I wanted to circle back. This is one I wanted to circle back. 
with you because what really fucked me up is understanding that it's not all the scary serial killers on death row as I originally right. thought. Yeah, and, and that's valid. And a lot of the people who are on death row literally committed the exact same crimes as people in the general population. Well, that's why I was saying like, it's, it's hard because it isn't, it's not a black and white no, thing. Right. Like why is inmate one on death row and inmate two is in, mm-hmm. you know, general population Mm -hmm. like why Mm -hmm. like that those sort of situations like i like i said earlier 90 percent of the time i don't think death penalty should be a consideration i do you know i'd say i'm a little bit of a jaded person but i do i do think that there is something that you know there is something about redemption and people can change their lives and make you know make amends make a difference but for like i said that 10 percent that are unabashedly unapologetic, yeah. openly admitting the things that they've done. Okay. I don't think that changes my opinion. There's always people that I think don't belong there or I don't think I don't think it should be treated lightly, I guess is my mm-hmm. overall. Like yeah. if you murdered somebody, you deserve to punish for it. I don't know if I totally agree with that you deserve to die for it. I do believe that there is something to redeeming yourself. All right. The death penalty is touted by its supporters as an effective deterrent to heinous crimes which is bullshit. It's categorically untrue. It's also often used by law enforcement and prosecutors as a bargaining tool. A guy named Ken Rose, who was an attorney with the Center for Death Penalty Litigation, helped the center write a study called On Trial for Their Lives, Hidden Costs of Wrongful Capital Prosecutions in North Carolina. In this study, the death penalty as a bargaining tool was investigated. This is something that pisses me the fuck off so incredibly badly that I'm holding myself back from doing yet another rant. <laughs> your rants are funny, though. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy your they're, rants. They're accurate. Also. I can't do one right now because it fucking pisses me well, off. Don't rant at us. Okay. <laughs> 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 so I'm going to trade my anger for education, and here's what I learned from the study. Prosecutors have the discretion to decide how a person is charged. First-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter. The study states that it's common practice to choose first-degree murder because that makes the defendant eligible for the death penalty. Great. It's better to choose the first-degree murder because then you have the option of using the bargaining tool. Oh. And apparently, there aren't that many checks and balances for this practice. And all that really needs to happen is to present the case to a judge in what is called a Rule 24 hearing where the prosecutor just needs to show that there are aggravating factors present. Aggravating factors? Yeah. So like in Leslie Lincoln's case, um, she was charged with first-degree murder and also was going to be tried capitally. Okay. Um, That means death penalty? Right. Yes. And her mother had something like 30 stab wounds. So that's so, oh, so like aggressive. It's uh, not like one and done. It's like oh, it's it's like extra murder. Yes, it's additional factors. Super murder. Yes, yes. Okay. So armed with the ability to charge a person capitally, a prosecutor holds a lot of fucking power. The study revealed that defendants who have spent months in jail under the threat of a capital prosecution are more likely to plead guilty and accept plea bargains, and suspects are more likely to confess if they think it will spare them the death penalty. So it's a ploy. It's like, it's a it's way to totally. get cases closed and get people like to convince them to confess, even if they didn't do it. Yeah. Thank you. I'm just getting some rosé because like, I'm angry. It's necessary. Thank you. You're welcome. So 
The study states that while death sentences have decreased significantly in North Carolina, strangely, the number of capital charges have not. So people aren't actually getting the sentences, but people are getting charged with them. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the study even says, while prosecutors may believe a defendant is guilty, sometimes the threat of execution persuades even the innocent to admit to crimes. Hmm. Because they don't want to... Yeah, I don't want to risk getting killed. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, according to them, there has been at least one wrongful capital prosecution in North Carolina every fucking year since 1987. That's horrible. So bad. I mean, there's a lot of consistency. At least one. At least one. So we don't really know how many more there could be. Right. Those are only only the ones that they found out. Mm -hmm. So Kenrose said that what this study showed is prosecutors are charging the maximum penalty in order to have some negotiating strength in the weakest cases. So how fucking sad is it that because a prosecutor doesn't have a strong case against a suspect, they can use the threat of death. And if the person is found innocent, there are no repercussions for the prosecutor. Oh, by the way. Prosecutors don't have any kind of consequences for misconduct. They have immunity from all of this fucking shit. Yeah, that seems. Because if you have a corrupt person, like, how do you hold them responsible? Mm-hmm. They're just going to well, continue doing what they've been doing. Yeah. But no, literally, prosecutors are immune from, like, being, what's the word? Punished for, for? for their mistakes. I mean, they're yeah. not held accountable. They don't, there's nothing like that's severe enough that would say, okay, if I put myself in this position where I'm cheating, lying, whatever, putting, fucking with somebody's life, I could potentially negatively impact my own life. It's like, right. they're right. immune. Yeah. Yeah. And so Brad Bannon told me about this when I was looking into the Kurt Turner case. And I think I may have shouted at him. So I am sorry, Brad. I know it's not your fault, but this, this shit pisses me off. Um, A man I interviewed for our next episode, who's really fucking amazing, he's a New York defense attorney, and he told me that New York recently was able to get traction on a bill where there would be repercussions for prosecutors and sort of oversight for prosecutors. So, like, people watching to make sure that prosecutors were sort of on the up and up. So that's great. Yeah. Prosecutors across the board in New York are fighting this tooth and nail, calling it unconstitutional to do this and basically having a big old tantrum about it. Okay. So also it should be noted and going back to what we're talking about in the episodes about the cost being fucked up in the study that Ken Rose helped author, they found that the state spent nearly $2.4 million in defense costs alone to pursue these failed cases capitally. It's a lot of money. And in another study in 2009 by an economist named Philip Cook, who is a professor at Duke University, he found that capital prosecutions cost North Carolina at least 11 fucking million dollars per year. Oh, jeez. So I'm no math person, but these cases are so much higher. The stakes and the money at the expense of taxpayers, it's probably time for taxpayers to get real pissed off. I'm mad. (laughs) <laughs> present <laughs> obviously i'm super fucking pissed but yeah. you're hiding it well that's the important i know <laughs> good actress <laughs> <laughs> so since 2006 16 convicted murderers have been sent to a death row that is simply not executing people there were reforms that were made in the early 2000s gretchen said the state recognized the impact of mental illness forced confessions, and incompetent public defenders. So that's goodish news. Mm -hmm. But supporters of the death penalty are hugely critical of the continued delays, as in 
these people want people to be murdered by the state. Another attorney with the Center for Death Penalty Litigation was quoted as saying, there are so many problems with the death penalty that are gaining exposure, like Alan Gal, mm-hmm. like everything that we've been talking about here, right. to want to restart executions at this time seems like the opposite of what we ought to be doing. We should be taking a hard look at it instead. So I just want to point out that there are still folks that I truly believe would happily make some cake, grab a bottle of wine, and head on down to the center of town to watch public legal murder in this year of our Lord 2019. Guys like a guy named Ken Honeycutt, no relation to Dennis Honeycutt. He is a former prosecutor who used to celebrate new death sentences by gifting lapel pins to his assistant prosecutors. Ew. Oh, it gets better. Why is everyone a piece of shit? Those lapel pins were shaped like goddamn nooses. Oh, come on. And when looking at the disparity of his job, well, he's a former prosecutor. When looking at the disparity of race and that executions tend to take place primarily in the South. And given that in recent days, there have been very real and very valid concerns that prisons are actually legal slave owners. It is not a leap to link executions to lynchings. Side note, everybody in the entire fucking world should watch 13th on Netflix by Ava DuVernay. It's really good. It shines a very horrific light on this exact concept and also read the new Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, a book by Michelle Alexander, a civil rights litigator and legal scholar. These two things should get you really up to speed. Inside death row, as with prison, people are living, eating, and breathing alongside other human beings, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. Friendships are developed. It's even possible that these friendships are possibly deeper or more raw than friendships on the outside, because the one common bond between these people is that they are all facing certain death, which was the case with Alan Gell. Alan Gell, while he was on death row, forged a close friendship with a man named Desmond Keith Carter, and he believed that Desmond's case warranted another look. He wasn't wrong. On December 10th, 2002, Alan Gell's conviction was vacated and he was taken off death row. Alan begged his attorneys to help Desmond, his buddy. This was eight years before the SBI was audited. While Alan wasn't in the report, Desmond Keith Carter was one of the 230 cases that was listed. Dwayne Deaver had been the analyst in Desmond's case. Of course he was. (laughs) Where Desmond was accused of murder. Deaver's testing revealed, according to the audit report, it confirmed the presence of blood despite a negative confirmatory test result. So, the same shit. The same shit. He just did it but left it out. So, and this sort of goes back to what we were talking about, about, like, putting someone to death where he's confessed to the crime or he's, like, whatever to the crime. So, Desmond confessed to the crime. Is it possible that Desmond's confession was coerced with this alleged blood evidence being used as leverage, as we've discussed in previous episodes? Absolutely. It's just as possible that it wasn't. We don't know. We do know that Desmond's attorneys weren't experienced in capital cases. The other thing we know is that Desmond's case should be looked into. And given the closeness of their relationship, I personally believe Alan's assessment of the situation. And remember how many of these cases that we've covered that involve jailhouse informants? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't, when it would come to saving the life of a human being, the same hold true in this case? Right. We depend on jailhouse informants. Right. Why don't we depend on them if they're positive? 
Well, because that would shine a light on the things that went wrong. Right. So there were actually a lot of people who believed, maybe not in Desmond's innocence, but in the importance of getting him off death row. Some of those people were the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. They wrote a public plea for his life. This plea examined Desmond's upbringing and substance abuse. In reading it, I'm struck by the idea that Desmond might have been self-medicating potential mental anguish due to coming from a broken home where his mother abandoned him and his father was incarcerated, which can also feel like abandonment. He was left in the care of his grandmother, who noticed his drinking and drugging might lean more toward an addiction than casual use. His grandmother tried to get him treatment, but he was ultimately rejected due to lack of health insurance. It was a couple of weeks after this that he might have ended up in his alleged victim's home. It's unclear if there is any evidence that actually linked him to the victim. He had, on that day, been drinking and smoking crack and using tranquilizers. He allegedly went to the victim's home in search of money to get more drugs. That's the story. Okay. What's amazing about this plea is that it posits the idea that the system frequently seems geared toward retaliatory measures, such as imprisonment and death penalties and such rather than the system focusing on the causation of such violence and possible solutions. The plea states that the death penalty will not, quote, stop the cycle of violence linked with poverty and oppression because it fails to address the roots of the crisis. In Desmond's case, the state didn't have mental or physical health care solutions in place for a, quote, citizen oppressed since childhood. In addition, Desmond, an impoverished black man, didn't have a lot of options for an attorney, so he was appointed one. A man named Doug Hux, a guy who'd previously been reprimanded by the state bar. So this plea cites that less than 1% of North Carolina attorneys are actually disciplined. And apparently, though the state bar only disciplines that 1% of North Carolina attorneys, court-appointed capital defense attorneys are the majority of those disciplined. Capital attorneys. Yeah. Death, like, death penalty. The highest of stakes. Yeah. yeah. How can that even be? So fucked up. So I think most people understand that public defenders are overworked and overburdened, like we know this. And the ACLU released a fact sheet called Race and the Death Penalty and brought up this very topic that impoverished people who go through the criminal defense system are regularly represented by ineffective counsel who are typically underpaid and overworked. This affects people of color the most. Especially when we take into account that federal funding for legal assistance involving capital punishment resource cases was cut in 1996. And this goes back to the vicious cycle of poverty to prison to poverty that we discussed in the last episode. Yeah, you're setting these people up for failure. Exactly. But going back to the plea, which cites a 2001 study conducted by the University of North Carolina that illustrates the racial divide, not just between the color of the defendants, but the color of the victims. The exact issue that Daryl Hunt faced in our last episode, where he was a black man and it was a white victim. The ACLU states that, quote, of people currently on death row, 82% were convicted in cases involving white victims. And that's people of all color. Sensing a pattern. Are convicted involving white victims. Right. But if the defendant is a person of color, the odds increase even higher. North Carolina and the United States have a racial discrimination problem across the board. And that problem doesn't stop when it comes to the government putting men and women to death. Desmond Keith Carter was a black man and convicted of first-degree murder in the death of a white woman. We're not dismissing that this woman's death was completely tragic. It absolutely was. It's just simply a fact that she was a white woman who was murdered by a black man, and that has a very real effect on sentencing, juries, and judges. 
we want to address the reality that Black people represent about 20% of the population in North Carolina. However, there are 78 Black people on death row and 52 white people. There are also Native Americans and those who have identified as other. These numbers are hugely disproportionate and do not speak to the narrative of racists who believe that Black people commit more crimes. So what these numbers really mean is that there's a systematic issue. Right. It speaks to a fucking broken system that desperately needs to be fixed. And for the purposes of this podcast, one small step toward that is unbiased and good science. Like, that is the point of our podcast. We're doing a bit of a tangent and getting into death row, and it's less about the SBI. But we feel that that is very important because people are on death row or were on death row because of the SBI. these These are causal, you know, scenarios. Right. Right. And just and it humanizes the effects of their actions, right? Yeah, I mean, because you look, you think about a report, and you're like, it's 230 cases. Oh, that sounds scary. But when you go through and you highlight multiple cases, and you see like the human Whoa. impact, like what these people have gone through, what the families still go through, mm-hmm. where if the case was handled properly and the evidence was tested correctly, a lot of this would have been alleviated, yeah. right? If the system was fair. Right. right. Then a lot of these problems would go away. Yeah. Or if you just had a scientist in there who was unbiased and a good scientist who was looking at all of this shit, maybe you would find evidence that would make it so that this person doesn't end up in prison or on death row or right. doesn't end up a statistic. Right. In the late aughts, people started waking up to the fact that there was a very real problem with racial bias in the criminal justice system. And with the help of Daryl Hunt, the Racial Justice Act was enacted in August of 2009. And we brought that up a little bit in the last episode with Daryl Hunt, but he he helped with that. It's part of his legacy. And this act allowed death row inmates to challenge their sentences if they believed that their sentence was impacted adversely by racial bias. And it wasn't just retroactive, though. People being tried currently in capital cases could also demonstrate with statistics demonstrating racial bias and any other kind of proof they could provide during sentencing that they felt racial bias was in play in their case. Well, how the fuck do you prove racism? I was going to say, like, how do you prove that? Yeah. So a defendant will need to prove that race was a significant factor and they're allowed to show evidence of this in three ways. Evidence that the death sentences were sought or imposed more frequently upon defendants of one race than others. Evidence that death sentences were sought or imposed more frequently on behalf of victims of one race than others. Or evidence that race was a significant factor in decisions to exercise peremptory strikes during jury selection. Oh, okay. So here's the thing. That's, That's basically like, let's get the black people off the jury so we have a white jury? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in the U.S., we believe we're promised that if we're in court, we will be heard by a jury of our peers. Our fate will be decided by people who might understand us a little more than a non-peer would. Or at least, that's what I always thought, that's what it meant. I also thought it was a constitutional right that I would get to enjoy as a U.S. citizen. Turns out, the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution does not mention peers at all. But what it says is... In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Never says anything about peers, Mm -hmm. jury peers. In fact, for a long time, only white men were allowed to serve on juries. And that was completely legal and great for white folks, but pretty shitty for people of color. Sadly, to this day, it's still kind of the case. In 2010, 
Two associate professors of law at Michigan State University did a study on racial bias in jury selection in North Carolina. So around the same time that that fucking audit is coming out, people are looking at North Carolina and what the fuck is going on there. And two of these people are Barbara O'Brien and Catherine M. Grasso. Barbara O'Brien and Catherine M. Grasso looked at a number of factors in the jury selection process, specifically the race of the jurors and the race of the defendants. They found that prosecutors excused juries at a, quote, significantly higher rate against eligible black members than all other members. They also found that disparities were even greater in cases involving black defendants, where the average strike rate was 60% against black jurors and 23% against all other jurors. So the reality is, in North Carolina at that time, of the almost 160 death row inmates, 31 of them had all-white juries at their sentencing, and 38 had juries that were predominantly white, as in, there was one person of color on their sentencing jury. Hmm. But here's the problem. There's a very real link between people of color and poverty in our country, as we've discussed. Serving on a jury for any length of time can be a financial burden. Right. Only eight states that I found force employers to pay their employees for jury duty. North Carolina is not one of them. In all other states, including North Carolina, employees can use sick days or holiday days or whatever they have to use. Essentially at your own expense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For the most part, judges are pretty cool and will excuse a potential juror if being a juror would be a financial burden. But there have been judges who have noticed that very real link between People of color and poverty, and in many cases, the jurors a defendant needs is the juror that's excused. Those judges could take next steps and force employers to pay their employees for jury duty and forbid retaliation against the employee. Or maybe, I don't know, we could just make that a federal fucking law. So in December 2012, this is in North Carolina, three defendants successfully appealed their sentences under the Racial Justice Act. The judge ruled that prosecutors relied upon race in its jury selection process. All three defendants got their sentences reduced from the death penalty to life without parole. The case was appealed by the state, and it went before the North Carolina Supreme Court, and it was overturned. In 2018, however, it was heard again, and the three defendants were given life without parole, which is better. Because again, some are guilty. Yeah. They just don't deserve to die. Right. Right. What's important about this, other than their lives, of course, is that when their cases were reheard in 2018, they were heard retroactively because the defendants had filed their grievances before 2013. That's significant because in 2012, a white male representative, a Republican named Paul Stamm, wanted to severely rewrite the Racial Justice Act. And then the General Assembly voted in favor to effectively repeal the law. The governor at the time, Bev Perdue, a white woman, vetoed this. Great. Go Bev. But legislature overrode her veto. (sighs) And in 2013, a Republican white male, the newly appointed Governor Pat McCrory, signed the repeal. So the Racial Justice Act, part of Daryl Hunt's legacy, was no longer. I think this pisses me off more than anything. Because if the people of color in North Carolina can't trust that they'll go through an unbiased system, maybe they could put some faith into an unbiased crime lab. But they couldn't do that either. Because for some unknown reason, in the crime lab, the workers will get general information about the samples they're testing, including race. Which are so unnecessary. Exactly. Like, I'm not sure why it's necessary information when testing a semen sample to know... Right. What the race is. Anything else besides what you're testing. That's all you need to know. Yeah. 
It's like the deck is stacked against them. And when one step is made forward to help citizens of the state, there are other people who want to take 10 steps backwards. So in this super cheery episode, we also have instances where with a lot of hard work, the system does correct itself and innocent people are exonerated or at least removed from death row to general population. Okay. Like with one of the seven people listed in the audit report who were sentenced to death row, Patricia Jennings, who after 23 years on death row was finally resentenced after the report was released and moved off of death row and into general population, which is where she should have been in the first fucking place. What about the other six people? Well, one of them we we have been covering in this episode, which is Desmond Keith Carter. Oh, okay. Uh, and then we'll get to the others in a minute. Future up. Ep- oh, oh, in I'm the jumping again. Sorry. Okay, carry future. on. Yeah. This would help if I had a script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine. I'm gonna go off script. Just going rogue. It yep. says blah 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Anyway. Kim and Sandra have given us a very good education in what people may experience post-exoneration, like continued PTSD, Mm -hmm. struggling with reintegration, depression, potential loss of relationships with families and loved ones, health issues, joblessness. I mean, we've kind of Yeah, it makes sense. You've been removed from life for so long that like all of a sudden being plunked into it without like resources is scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's expected to be challenging. So as you can imagine, the death row exoneree experiences all of that and more. Right. Speaking of, Kim and Sandra spoke with a death row exoneree who lived with the fear of being strapped in and killed every day he was on death row. Like, who wouldn't? Yeah. After he was exonerated, he was in his defense attorney's car and his lawyer wanted him to put on his seatbelt, as it was now the law. The lawyer refused to drive until he put it on, which, I mean, it's a lot. I get that. But this poor man didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be strapped in to anything, including a fucking seatbelt. Like, mm. these normal, everyday things oh, like to us. PTSD was so... Yeah. 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 It's triggering. Another person Kim and Sandra spoke with likened their emotions to an ongoing injury, saying, I hurt and it never stopped. Another person told them he battles with detachment, the feeling of being dead, and the fear of being overwhelmed by his emotions. Even seven years after his release, it's still too painful for him to tap into these emotions. So he avoids them instead of confronting them. This is a protective shield in the short run, but in the long run, it may exacerbate the trauma. Yeah, it's probably not the healthiest way to handle it. It's just like pushing it down. Oh, I get it. That's so Midwestern. Push it down. Push it down. Keep on going. Being from Florida, we like to share our feelings. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Sharing is caring. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm angry, I like to share. (laughs) Good for you. You get a curse word and you get a curse word. (laughs) (laughs) I also read Kim and Saunders amazing book, life after death row exoneries search for community and identity and inside and out death row and the impacts it has are incredibly fucked up, especially with an innocent person. It starts when they hear they've been found guilty and are sentenced to death for a crime they didn't commit. And this is when their coping and survival instincts kick in and it can go beyond just hearing the word guilty. Those sentenced in capital cases are viewed as the worst of the worst criminals, even if they're innocent. Condemned prisoners view death row as a planned assault on their humanity, dehumanization, which in a way, to be dehumanized is to be dead. Alan Gell describes this dehumanization process saying society's got to perceive us as monsters because to perceive us as human beings, it wouldn't be as acceptable to execute us. Yeah, because if you're an other, like normal everyday people are not going to like, well, that's not me. That's that's a bad person. Right. 
exactly. He's a monster. She's a monster. Whatever. Right. It's okay. Like they need to be, they need to go away because they're monsters. You got to take the humanity away for the death penalty to be okay. He says that line fucks me up. It's so true. It makes sense. But we don't think about it that way. Or if you are one of the people that, that want a person to be executed, that, that of course is like, that summarizes probably how they are wired. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you have to think about them as like a separate entity. Like we're not the same. I'm not, I'm a human. You're not. There's a separation between, well, a separation of empathy. That's a, a, you know, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. For the other person, the one who. For the one, for the one who's doing it, or the one who's advocating for Uh it. It's like, well, you're an other, whether it's for socioeconomic reasons or ethnic reasons or whatever, you're a, you're an other. Yeah. You're not like me. Right. Like, this would never happen to someone like me. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is all bullshit. Yeah. Because we're all humans. It doesn't matter what, like, where we come from or what color we are. Or right. Any of that. Preach. Preach. Mm. All right. Ooh, my, I'm, let me get off my soapbox. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like you on your soapbox. <laughs> yeah, I do too. It's great. there. <laughs> all right. In fact, that effort to dehumanize can start during an investigation and might be seen during the sentencing. For example... A man named Greg Wilhoyt told Kim and Sandra a horrific story about his sentencing. This is horrible. Where the judge presiding over the case decided to go off script when he told Greg, quote, we will kill you by lethal injection. But if that fails, we'll kill you by electrocution. If the power goes out, we'll hang you. If the rope breaks, we'll take you out back and shoot you. Jesus. Yeah. I hope he got fired because that's so fucking beyond unprofessional for a man who's ostensibly supposed to be fair and fucking impartial. But we don't know if he did or not. In my head, I fired him. Yeah, he's fired forever. Yep. For the person on death row, there's additional issues that a person in prison may not face. Like survivor's guilt is a frequent issue. Watching friends get taken away from their cells for the last time. Why them? Why not me? Or if they're exonerated, they feel guilty for those who are still on death row who are still facing death. And I think we kind of talked about it before where it's like they get really close, you know, like yeah. you spend a lot of time with these people and you have a sense of like obligation to your fellow inmates. And it's like, even if they're, they're innocent as well, it's like they may stay there forever or die. And so. they are also connected by something that I don't think any of us have ever experienced, but they're connected by certain death. Yeah. And so they have this like, this bond that I don't think any of us could ever understand. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Okay. Prior to his release, Alan Gell struggled with disillusionment when his lawyer discovered evidence that would eventually exonerate him, including an audio tape of one of the teenage girls talking to her boyfriend about the story she was going to fabricate to tell the police. Jesus. The tape was never disclosed to Gell's initial defense attorney. Oh, that seems nice. So he was upset, hurt, you know, easy to understand. And then there was the discovery of the witness statements and then the course altered witness statements. So he was learning all about all of this and going like, what the fuck? Why was like, why was this not brought up at my initial trial? Right. How did this happen to me? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what did I do? Mm-hmm. And he said he was happy at first when he got out. And then he says, quote, in the middle of the happiness, celebrating and throwing my party, I just got slapped with the real hard reality. Where was the evidence? Where did it go? Right. The state I'd had it in their files. Angry. Yeah, yeah. And there's a like sense of all bitterness. Those year, all those years were taken away from me. Mm-hmm. Fuck yeah. When they, when, when the proof was out there that I didn't do it, and right. it just wasn't turned over. Yeah. Someone knew that he was innocent. Say yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you, you're happy that you're out, but you're also like, 
who who do I got to slap? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm fucking pissed. So yeah, he said he suddenly, even though he was happy, he had that bitterness that he was carrying around with him, wondering, the, like what you said, Priya, wondering why. And then Alan laid down some real truth saying, I still find it discouraging that I'm the 113th mistake, meaning like he's the yeah. 113th person exonerated from death row. And it seems like after the second mistake, or maybe even the first mistake, you'd say, oh, wait, how are we doing this? And try to prevent it from happening again. Yeah. Right. But if you don't see them as people, then it's easy yeah. to brush it right. as another rug. number. Yeah. But also if you're a prosecutor, you have this like great thing that you can use against people you're trying to put in tool. prison. Right. And if you're, you know, just trying to avoid trials, the expense of trials, like yeah. death row is good for some people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And once he was a free man, it wasn't an easy road ahead. Alan especially had a hard time with women because of the circumstances of him being on death row. He said, I don't think I could ever trust a girl. I thought I may end up being betrayed or backstabbed or hurt again. And I had to consider that. And this is like literal, my last girlfriend almost killed me. It's totally fair. It's fair. Yeah. A significant component to the coping process for exonerees is them reclaiming their innocence as core to their identities. Since their wrongful conviction, others, including police, prosecutors, media, even family members have controlled the definition of who they are. They're defined as murderers, rapists, perpetrators, prisoners, heinous monsters, not worthy of life. So imagine all of a sudden now you're like trying to just like reacquaint yourself with who you have been this whole time, but Mm -hmm. you've been labeled as all of these like very negative things. And now you're trying to like constantly prove outwardly that you're not those things, even though you have known that the whole time. But some can make it past that. In fact, in Alan's case, there's a bit of a happy ending, unbelievable as that may be. After he got out of prison, Alan reconnected with an old girlfriend. Perhaps it was easier to trust her since he had known her before he earned all of the dehumanizing labels. In fact, this woman was the same girl he'd been dating before he ended up cheating on her with one of the two teenage girls that accused him of murdering Alan Ray Jenkins and led to him spending years on death row. But he reconnected with this now woman and they fell in love and got married. Well, that's good. Prior to their wedding, she jokingly said something to the effect of, better not cheat on me again. Remember what happened last time? <laughs> Which is dark. I mean, I appreciate dark. That's a little dark. Yeah. But oh, wait, that was in her vows? <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh. She just said that no. before like, they Way got. to read a room, yeah. girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. Shit. <laughs> no. Is this thing on? <laughs> <laughs> which is dark as fuck, but probably goes to the sort of humor that the two of them can share. And to add to the good news, they recently just had a little baby. Aww. So congrats. Congrats. Cute. Congratulations. And that's the end. Happy ending. Happy ending for once. No, it's not going to be happy. No, it's Just kidding. Well, but it's like one happy moment, so. Yeah. You got to celebrate those one little moments that we have. All right. Back to your regular scheduled misery. Yes, super cheery. Take it away, Grim Reaper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In researching this episode, Priya found that on the Department of Public Safety site, it's described that preceding the days of an execution, the condemned prisoner is placed on death watch until the execution is completed in accordance with the state's execution protocol. So she dug deeper and found an execution procedure manual from the North Carolina Central Prison where men on death row are housed. It's super fun. I can imagine. Yeah. You're going to find out. Oh, yay. It starts with setting the official date, the order of the execution, and then a week before the execution, the condemned prisoner is placed on death watch status. About one to three days before the execution, the condemned prisoner will be transferred to the death watch area where they will be constantly monitored by an officer. Isolated from humans. Mm -hmm. It's like dehumanizing again. Yeah. 
The execution team members, their words, not ours. Execution team members? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like the X-Men. But not cool. Not cool. Mm -mm. Terrible. So those team members include a licensed physician, two registered nurses, two paramedics, and seven correctional custody personnel. The manual describes these seven people as executioners. These people are all hired by the warden. And they can I just interrupt real quick? Yeah. So they describe them as executioners, and I'm just thinking now about like the history that you. That's what I literally was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Just like we've come no further than no, it's the same. The 16th century or King Hammurabi. Yeah. Yeah. These people are all hired by the warden, and they must quote. This is like wild. We're heading into ill territory. They must quote express a willingness to participate. They must be quote mature seasoned professionals and possess a sound mind and exhibit sound judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it makes them sound like murder cheerleaders. Right. Yeah. Who would be like, yes, I, I am psyched about this. It's Tuesday. I've got nothing to do. Sure. Let's kill someone. Yeah. yeah. There are also rehearsals of the execution process what? around every other month or so. And the, the condemned prisoner will need to have a medical person identify veins and potential problems accessing said veins. Horrible. And you have nothing to do but sit there and think about the minutes going by. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Ooh. That's gruesome. So there's two groups of syringes on hand, group A and group B. Group A should be sufficient to kill the condemned prisoner, but just in case, they have a group B as a backup, which is identical to group A. Both groups well, will have four syringes. Sorry, what were you going to say? Well, if group A didn't work, why is group B going to work? I guess just the amount. No, it's, the, it's what it's just a bigger d- dose. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because oh, what I was sense. about to say was the amount that's in it. So Yeah, because you don't know how much you're going to metabolize or whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe like, like a bigger person needs more, a smaller person needs less. Who knows? Or like however their body processes things could vary. So both groups will have four syringes of 1.25 grams of pentobarbital and five syringes containing different levels of saline solution. Why saline? It seems to be some sort of a wash. Is it, it a sanitary thing? It also, I think, opens up the veins a little bit more. I don't totally understand it. So, okay. The condemned prisoner will be restrained on a gurney. A roll of gauze will be placed in each of the prisoner's hands, and their hands will be taped closed over the gauze to prevent the condemned prisoner from trying to, you know, save their own life. That fucked me up. That part really fucked me up. But, like, that means that they've experienced things in the past where people have probably tried to... Like, I would imagine... I would probably, you have that reaction of like, as humans, we try to like survive always that like, how can you not try to fight to the last minute? I would 100% be trying to get those restraints Mm -hmm. off. The condemned prisoner can give final words only after the IVs are all in place. The warden will call the secretary of public safety to see if there are any changes or should they keep on killing this person. Post-execution, the condemned prisoner's body will be transferred to the medical examiner's office. After a cause of death is established, lethal injection, the medical examiner will arrange for transportation to a funeral home if the next of kin wants. Otherwise, the body will be disposed of by law. Immediately after the completion of the execution, the warden will hold a post-execution debrief with the execution team members to review how the execution was carried out. So it's like a post-mortem. Is like, like how do we do? Mm-hmm. Good job, team. Ugh. Gross. Ew. So at no point... Did I see in this manual any mental health officials provided for the 19 total people 
who are carrying out the execution. To the official witnesses, to the warden, to anyone fucking present at the state-sanctioned murder. Like, there's zero way that contributing to or observing a person dying, even a convicted criminal, there's no way that doesn't have an effect on everyone present. And let's say a person is present and somehow they're okay after that because they know in their heart that executed person committed a crime so heinous that somehow they can justify their death. I wonder how they would feel if they found out the person they helped kill was actually innocent. Like, how would they feel if they put Alan Gell to death or any of the other death row exonerates? Yeah. Okay, so there were actually seven people listed in the audit report who were either on death row or executed. And Ken Rose had a client listed on the report. His name was John Hardy Rose. There's no relation to Ken. So John was executed Mm. on November 30th, 2001 at 2 a.m. by lethal injection. So this was nine years prior to the audit, but his name was on there. So I feel like shenanigans possibly happened. Probably should have been looked into. So also in the report was a man named Joseph Timothy Keel. He was executed seven years prior to the audit on November 7th, 2003, also at 2 a.m., which apparently is the time of choice for North Carolina to execute people. So Joseph's attorney, Jay Ferguson, was interviewed by the News and Observer about his client being on the list. And he said, this is the whole problem. There are no do-overs with the death penalty. We can't go back and fix these errors. Right. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, someone's life, like in some of these cases, someone's life was taken from them. But it shouldn't have been. Right. We also mentioned Patricia Jennings earlier. We don't know much about the remaining names in the report spreadsheet other than their names. But their sheer presence on that spreadsheet indicates that true justice wasn't given to them. They are John Robert Elliott, Terry Lee Ball, and Chris Roseborough. And these seven cases, these cases resulting from the SBI crime lab's crimes, I'd call them attempted murder. And in three of them, they were actual murder. John Hardy Rose, Joseph Timothy Keel, and then, wait, hang on. Remember how Alan Gell begged his attorneys to help his friend Desmond? Mm-hmm. On the day that Alan's case was vacated, Desmond was scheduled to be executed. Alan's lawyers couldn't help Desmond at that point, and Desmond had already gone through this protocol. There was nothing more anyone could do, and on December 10th, 2002, Desmond Keith Carter was executed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the fuckery within that lab, the cover-ups, the corruption, the outright lying resulted in deaths beyond those on death row. There are others on the list who just died in prison, old age, murdered, who the fuck knows? How did the NCSBI crime lab get away with this? How did they get away with it for as long as they did? Like that fucking pisses Mm -hmm. me off. Because there's no checks and balance. No. It's just... Except... (laughs) <laughs> the scope of the audit was limited to 1987 to 2003. That's 16 years. And there were 230 cases that were found. Seven of those were people on death row in a 16-year period. That's a lot from a crime lab that was accredited a lot by Asgard Lab. Remember them, Keith? Your favorite mm, acronym? Yes. <laughs> you were like, Asgard Lab. Well, because it's a terrible, they're all terrible. <laughs> The names. An acronym yes, is yes. supposed to roll off the tongue. Yes. And I'm like, ask, ask, blah, blah. <laughs> yes. Like, mad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Easy to remember. 
And also you can use it in like puns, like not really a pun, but let's get mad or whatever. Yeah. Like can't do much with this. Not let's get as clad lab. No. <laughs> no one wants Duh. to get that. <laughs> well, we're going to get into them, more acronyms and another fucked up case on the next episode. Acronyms are fucked up. Thank you for listening. Every episode, we ask that if you have money or time to spare, you direct it towards a project that one of our experts recommend or is involved in, or an organization that one of us has a personal connection to. Today, I'd love to highlight the work done by the American Civil Liberties Union, an organization dedicated to protecting our civil rights. I donate to them regularly. My bestie's sister works there, and Priya's sister just got done doing an internship there. Yay, Sophie. So we'd love for you, if you have time or money to give, for you to direct it to this super important organization that's doing incredible work for our country's humans. You can find them at ACLU.org. But also we're going to show for (laughs) Ear Hustle because we fucking love them. (laughs) Spread the word for them as well, too, please. Do the right thing. And as always, we'd love for you to join us on our social media where we'll be posting links to our research, photos, and videos on our Facebook page. You can find us on all platforms, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at Podcast. That's E-F-F-E-D-U-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal. FDUPPodcast at gmail.com. And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked up or effed up is about helping other people. But in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices of the victims and survivors who have been impacted. If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Done. Effed up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, Priya Hubbard. Additional research done by me, Jessica Borges. Executive inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott, social media hall monitors, Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A-L-L-I-E-K-E-L-L-E-Y Illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges, executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On-air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, a.k.a. Newman. Additional investigations are provided by Cat Detectives, Monsieur Hercule Poirot, and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Sandra Westervelt and Kim Cook. We also got an Indian dessert, just FYI, like... Just to be real, and by we, I mean me. I ordered it for us. I Nobody no else is interested. After my four pieces of pizza, I think I had six. <laughs> I had six. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, but since Justin, <laughs> when you said that I had four pieces, I was like, oh, only four? Oh, I had six. Oh, uh, that kid in a little shirt. <laughs>